A reading from Deuteronomy chapter 30, beginning with verse 15. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commandments, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call, call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The word of the Lord. A reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. The word of the Lord. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, starting with verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. 
Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say simply is yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one, the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. You know, we follow the lectionary around here, and it's just, you know, every once in a while there's one of these weeks that comes up, and uh, it, it just, you go, okay, we have to preach on that today. <laughs> Let's all gulp really hard, and uh, we'll make it through this. Um, but today, I do believe that God wants to speak to us uh, something uh, this morning, and, and I want to start with Deuteronomy, our first passage that we had today. Our, it's important to remember, and one of the, the major things I want us to hear is um, that our God is a relational God that at the core of God's being is relationship. In fact, Christian theology has always affirmed that even within God's self is a relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So at the core of who God is, it is relationality. And this relational God is the one who rescued Israel from Egypt, okay? It's this God who responds to his people, who's active with his people, who walks with his people. But he's not just a God of rescue in the sense that he just does a one-off rescue and that's it. He is the one who walks with his people, who walks them out and through and on the other side of rescue. God is not a rescuer in the sense of a fireman who rescues a cat out of a tree, returns it to its owner, and then kind of moves on, right? Our God is the one who's present and who's with us. God rescues because he is the rescuing God his nature. And then God walks in relationship with his people. God's desire is, has always been for his people to be something in the world, okay? They are a people forever shaped by God's rescue. So this thing that has happened is supposed to shape them and change them. And God's desire is that his people would be formed by who he is and by the mission that he has for them. In Deuteronomy, the children of Israel have been rescued, and God says, after he's rescued them, I have a path for you, and it's a good path. I have this path that leads to life. It is the path that leads to life. And of course, there's another path that you can choose, but the other path that you choose leads to death, where it's going you don't want to go. In fact, it's like, I've heard it quoted before that this passage is, I, I have before you life and death, and then he gives us the answer to the test, choose life Choose this way, right? And God is clear about what the path that leads to death looks like. It's turning to other gods and following them. That that doesn't lead anywhere. It leads you to destruction. It says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life. Today, our passages talk a little bit about morality, about virtue, about behavior. And it's important that we remember that anytime the scriptures talk to us about morality, virtue, behavior, they're talking about the God who loves us, who rescued us just as we are, and who has laid out a path of life for us. That's who this God is. And yet we worship stuff that's not life-giving, don't we? 
over and over again. I love C.S. Lewis's famous quote. You've probably heard this before. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. (laughs) We are comfortable with the path of death. We are comfortable with mud mud pies in the slum. We don't have a category for the better life that God offers us. On our own, we are incapable of choosing life. We see this play out in the life of Israel. They fail over and over again, and we fail over and over again. We turn to other things. And this is why it's so important that the life that God calls his people into and this Christian life and this Christian faith is not just one of behavior modification. This isn't a path where we say Christianity is really about getting your behavior right so that you can live a better life. No, no. It is the life of trusting in God's faithfulness even when we are unfaithful because we are unfaithful. It's trusting that he is always faithful. And that trust, what happens is when we let go of our own desire to be able to get everything perfect and get everything right and we begin to trust him, we begin to see our lives form and shape to look more like him. It's a beautiful thing. Jesus is the only one who really chose life. The only one who fully trusted God and trusted him all the way to the cross. I heard a story this week about Johnny Cash, very um, apt for the city that we all live in. Um, His uh, famous song, Walk the Line, I'm sure you've probably heard this before, was intended to be a double entendre song. Okay, it was a love song for sure, right? And that's obvious about it. But it was also a gospel song. Johnny Cash, his life was a constant struggle to walk the line in his faith. Um, He tended to mess up over and over again. Even though he had a deep faith in God, he struggled to walk the line. He was a Christian who was forever aware of his own frailty. Sometimes when people pass on, when people die, we look at them and we go, but they did so many good things. And we kind of list off the good things that they did. Here's the good actions that they did. But a friend said of Johnny Cash that his story was not really about the good things he did. And his story wasn't about his faithfulness to God. His story was about God's faithfulness to him. And he celebrated that. I think that's how I want to be known. Not for my faithfulness to God, even though I hope that happens as I'm formed by who God is. But I want, I want it to be known that I was and we are people who trust in God's faithfulness to us above all. What is it that we trust? Do we trust our bank account? <laughs> we trust our talent, our performance, our ambition and skill. Even those of us that'll look at those and go, no, I don't worship that stuff. In fact, I'm not very talented or rich, or skilled at all, and that's the problem. (laughs) But by thinking that, we're actually, in some ways, subtly trusting in it. Because what we're saying is, if I was only better at that, if I only had more of that, then my life would be as it's supposed to be. 
But notice when we do that, when we trust in other things, we begin to start to look like those things in which we trust. So when we spend our time beholden to money, money becomes our obsession. I know you've heard me say this before, but I know people <laughs> that money's their obsession and you can almost see dollar signs in their eyes <laughs> over time because they're just so driven. You know, that's exactly what they want and what they're going to be. When they, we become obsessed with our own attractiveness, that becomes our ultimate goal. We're formed by that. Sometimes it's performance. And so we stomp over people on the way up the corporate ladder, don't we? You know people like that, right? When we don't live up to those things, those expectations we set for ourselves, those things that we worship, we begin to turn to things like drink and sex in order to feel a sense of peace or a fulfillment of that lack of that thing that we're not achieving. Choosing life simply means placing our lives in the hands of God and trusting that he is the one who is faithful. And as we do, we find that our character begins to be shaped by him. Our Corinthians passage, Paul basically calls, continuing the analogy, calls the people of Corinth ignorant children. Um, if you remember the past few weeks, the context of Paul's letter here is he's dealing with this community that has a lot of factions. There's a lot of people that are bragging about they're for Apollos or they're for Paul or they're for Peter. And I was baptized by Apollos or baptized by Paul or by Peter and they've separated themselves. So there's all this competition about who was baptized by whom. Some people follow this guy, some people follow this guy. And in the midst of this, Paul gives them two growth metaphors. The first one is he says, you're currently behaving as children, you're infants. Okay, you haven't grown up yet. You're just children. And Paul says they're of the flesh, which for us is an odd terminology when we read the scripture. It doesn't mean that Paul is against physicality, skin and, and blood. But what he's saying is that they're clinging to things that won't last, that are corruptible. Flesh is corruptible in that sense. Things that won't last. Paul's saying you still haven't yet fully succumbed to grace, succumbed to trust in God. You're just babies. And the reason for that, that's the reason why there's all this jealousy and quarreling among you, because you're trusting in other things other than trusting in God's grace. They become obsessed with status or with experiences or all these kind of things. They're not trusting in God. When I was a pastor in Tulsa, I, I used to have lunch with a specific friend and member of our congregation every week. It was really the only person I met with every week, maybe one exception, but, um, and he's an older man and his story is just incredible. He has experienced significant trauma in his life, like beyond anything. I mean, if you think about the most traumatic stories you've heard, I'm not kidding when I say that his would go beyond that, I'm sure. Um, he spent much of his life because of the significant trauma he faced as a child and as a young adult to try to chase after things that made him feel valuable. So his entire adult life has been shaped by searching for drink and drugs and sex and performance and everything. At the time of my life, I had spent as a pastor a lot of time discussing theology with people. I know that shocks you, right? But that's how I spent a lot of my time as a pastor and discussing deeper things. And I was going through seminary at the time and I was so excited by that. And then I would meet with him and he just didn't wanna talk about that stuff. <laughs> he didn't wanna talk about theology. 
He had like gag reflex to it. He didn't want to go very deep. And in later years, he'd ask me more questions and he was more curious, but, but he always needed to categorize things really quickly. And so much of our time, we talked about, much of the time we talked about God, it was simply reminding him that God loves him over and over again. It was the questions of, I don't know that I'm really loved by God. I don't know. I, I'm, I've done all this bad stuff. I feel all this shame. It's just that constant reminder that you can't earn it. You can't earn God's love. Also, that God hurts with you, that the stuff you've been through is bad, and God hurts with you in the midst of that and struggles with you. As he got older and older over the time, we spent a lot of years doing this. Um, he would be afraid about his eternal destiny and just constantly ask And I just had to remind him over and over again that he will be with God forever, that he's secure in that. No matter how mature we are in our faith or no matter how long we've been walking with Christ, we all have those moments, I think, where we just need to hear that, that we're loved, that that he cares for us, that we haven't earned it, right? And the Corinthians are showing the reality that they need to be reminded of that, that God's love and God's rescue had not really sunk in in their life. They needed to be reminded of that. If they had, they wouldn't have had so much jealousy and quarreling among them and fractions. This is always where right behavior comes from in the kingdom of God, resting in God's faithfulness and not in our own. It comes from surrender, So that's the first metaphor that he gives, this growth metaphor of a child growing up. But then he also gives a second metaphor. He says that he planted their church. Paul was the church planter, right? Apollos watered it, okay? So he came along and helped them kind of grow in that way. But God is the one who gave the growth, he said. Paul planted it, Apollos watered it, but God gave the growth. God is responsible for the growth. So Paul says that the one who plants and the one who waters, he goes on to say, are really nothing. (laughs) God is through all of it, and we're just servants of him. That's it. It's important for us to remember that God is responsible for our spiritual growth. As we trust him, he forms us. We can choose, I believe that we have free will to choose to cooperate with that in our lives, to yield to him. But ultimately it is God who brings about spiritual growth. It's not about spinning our wheels enough times, earning enough things, achieving enough things spiritually to be able to get farther and farther down the road. It is God who does that in our life. I also believe, and you've heard me talk about this, God is responsible, just as he was at the church in Corinth, God is responsible for the growth of our church here. Our responsibility is to join God in the planting and the watering of this congregation. I cast it out to you a couple weeks ago, some significant challenges for this year, like some exciting possibilities, some um, challenges towards inviting people into our congregation, things that are hard and scary, but encouraging us to step out and do that. And as we do that, we're trusting God for the growth. This is also, I believe, a glimpse, this metaphor of growth and of God being responsible for it is a glimpse of what happens in the sacraments. When we come to the table, all we bring forward at this table is real bread and real wine. That's it. We also, at baptism, we bring forward real water for baptism. These humble, ordinary elements that God created in the first place. So they're not even anything we've created or come up with. God did it in the first place, 
but we bring this humble offering and we say, God, will you do something with this? It's kind of something that we've done. In the ancient world, they pressed grapes, they, br- they baked bread. We kind of just go to the grocery store, right? Do that stuff. They hiked to the well or to the river for water. But God gave them the earth, gave them the resources and the skills to do it. So we bring our humble offering, which is from God anyway, and we give it to him and we believe he does something with that. Our ordinary bread and wine are mysteriously somehow the body and blood of Christ. What? Our ordinary water is somehow new life. What? This is what God does in your life. You surrender your everyday stuff frailties and all, trusting him, and he will be faithful to make something beautiful out of it. I love this last line of that passage. For we are God's servants working together. You are God's field, God's building. I love to just say, like, God is up to something with us. (laughs) He's up to something with you. He's up to something with this congregation. We don't always know what it is. We can't always put our finger on it, but God's up to something. And our job is just to kind of keep listening, to keep following, to follow, I like the analogy, follow the breadcrumbs of where the spirit is leading us and just continue to trust him and trust that he's doing something in our midst. In our Matthew text, we have another part of the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus speaks about anger, lust, and lies. Heavy stuff, heavy passage. We read this today. Last week, we heard Jesus say this thing about the Pharisees, and he said that your righteousness as children of the kingdom should exceed that of the Pharisees. What does that mean? Like, how does that possibly happen? Jesus has set the bar so high for us. How could we ever follow him in this? If our righteousness is supposed to exceed the Pharisees, how is that even possible? When Jesus talks about anger and murder, It's important for us to remember like what happens with anger and ultimately with violence in our world. When we have been hurt, when we've experienced hurt in our life or we're fearful or afraid of something, we often lash out out of that hurt or out of that fear. We might lash out towards a loved one, towards a neighbor, towards an enemy. And sometimes our action is really small, okay? So sometimes we're hurt and we lash out with a sarcastic comment. I know you guys never do that, but sometimes I know some people that, do, that lash out with sarcastic comments, right? Sometimes we lash out with passive aggressiveness. Again, I know not you guys, other people. Jesus says even sometimes we lash out and say, you fool, which to us we go, okay, that doesn't seem like that big a deal. <laughs> but, but we lash out with these kind of comments. But that small thing then triggers the hurt or fear or disrespect in the other person, okay, that we've lashed out to. So what they do is they lash out in a little bigger way than you did, right? So they respond in a little way, a little bigger way than that. Well, then they've pushed your hurt button or your fear button or your disrespect button even harder, so you push back a little bit more. You see where this is going, right? It kind of cycles over and over again. The cycle continues and it never stops. And the end result, Jesus says here, the end result of that is murder. That seems harsh, but that's the end result of this when the cycle just continues. Now imagine this on a larger scale. Every nation that is attacked believes that their best response is to retaliate against the one that hurt them. You can see this happening in our world. Nations go back and forth, each believing this final strike will end it all. But ultimately, it just makes it worse, doesn't it? 
kind of continues the cycle of violence. Jesus realizes here the power of anger, that anger and bitterness, when left unchecked, lead to disaster. You can see that when Jesus gives this, it's out of his great love. He's going, if you give in to anger, it's going to continue to cycle over and over again. That's not the path of life. Now, this anger doesn't build like this overnight. It builds and it festers. In fact, Jesus feels so strongly about this, he uses the word for hell to describe the result here. Now, I don't have time to go into what all the meanings that hell has in the New Testament and debate all of that today, but I wanna give you the literal meaning of this word Gehenna here. Whatever the eternal implications are, we can unpack that another time, but Gehenna literally means the trash dump, okay, in this city. It was a place, the trash dump. So before modern landfills, compacting equipment, and sewage, what people did is they dumped the waste and then they just burned it, okay? Jesus may have, been pointing, may have actually been pointing to Gehenna as he was speaking. <laughs> so he might've been like, you are headed, your anger is going to cause you to head over there to the trash dump, okay? This is a, when you head down this road of anger, you will eventually become a heaping pile of trash on fire. That's the image that he's giving here. We can get so torn up by anger that we actually become trash heap people who are smoldering and actually smell up the world. <laughs> That's really the image here. So what's the remedy? Well, Jesus says the remedy to this kind of anger in our heart, which leads to violence, the, the remedy is to reconcile. In fact, Jesus says here, reconciliation is so important, it's more important than worship. What? In the historic church, you know that grace and peace thing that we do right before communion where we greet each other? Well, historically in the church, that was a time where if you had enmity against somebody in your congregation, you went and made that right right before you came to the table. So you said, hey, we're gonna come together in grace and peace. I don't wanna come to the Lord's table without having reconciled and without having resolved that here, right? Jesus paints this exaggerated picture to make a point. So he paints a picture of someone who's purchased their sacrifice, which was an animal at that time, arrived at the temple in Jerusalem, and then they get ready to offer it, and then they remember, oh, I've got an offense against this other person. So they set down their sacrifice, they make the three-day journey back to Galilee, <laughs> they reconcile with that person, and then they come back and do it all over again. It's that important. Reconciliation with each other is serious. And look at the life of Jesus. Jesus had every opportunity to get angry, didn't he? Now, when I say anger, I'm not talking about the basic emotion that, that comes up in our heart. I'm talking about something that the bitterness that dwells in our heart when we allow things to go unreconciled. Jesus had every opportunity to get angry, and yet Jesus chose to break the cycle of violence. He made reconciliation possible. He took the violence and anger of the world upon himself. So when we talk about reconciliation, it's not this ideal that good people are supposed to shoot for. Reconciliation is something that has been accomplished in Jesus, and we're called to live into it. So if you're struggling with anger today, the answer, and I hope you never hear this from my sermons, the answer is never, just stop it. <laughs> stop being angry. It's gonna lead you to hell, <laughs> stop it. No, I wanna invite you to reflect on what God did for you, did for creation, 
Jesus could have been angry and could have lashed out. Instead, he carved out the way of peace and we're called to receive it. Okay. Then he talks about lust. In 1976, before I was born, um, Jimmy Carter was running for president of the United States. Okay. Um, is that funny that I was bo- wasn't born in 1976? <laughs> uh, Carter was the first president to call himself a born-again Christian. I might surprise you, or an evangelical Christian. And he was asked by a, an interviewer about the role of religion in his life. Okay. And he said this, he said, I'm not going to try to do the Georgia accent, okay, I'm just going to do it. I try not to commit a deliberate sin. I recognize that I'm going to do it anyhow because I'm human and I'm tempted. And Christ set some almost impossible standards for us. Christ said, I tell you that anyone who looks on a woman with lust has in his heart already committed adultery. I've looked on a lot of women with lust. I've committed adultery in my heart many times. This is something that God recognizes I will do and I have done it and God forgives me for it. Now, this was seen as a really controversial moment at the time. Um, The president of the United States admitted to lust? What? Now, I think nowadays we're kind of past that initial shock, aren't we? We don't necessarily get shocked by that. But at the time, people didn't have a high tolerance for thinking about their president struggling with something like this. Jesus is serious about this lust thing. In fact, he evokes Gehenna again, the trash heap. Adultery in your heart can only lead you to the trash, he says. Jesus says to his hearers, deal ruthlessly with the first signs of lust. Deal with it ruthlessly. Now again, it's always important to remember the reason for this. It's because God doesn't want to see us go down a path that leads to death. It's his heart is always love. We've been taught so much in the church, so much uh, legalism, so much in uh, warped purity cultures and things like that about sex and about lust and all these kind of things. Jesus cares for us and loves us and that's his heart. He says, this is ultimately where that can lead for you. This is because of his love. Jesus again uses a hyperbolic analogy. So he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. So next time someone tells you we need to take every word of the Bible literally, right? See how many eyes and hands they have. His exaggeration is to make a point that's serious, okay? It's, this is significant. This is important. Deal ruthlessly with this. When my daughter is cooking or helping Ashley cook or me cook, I, she mostly cooks, but um, and she and her hand is too close to the stove, I might yell at her <laughs> to get her attention. Lucy, get away from there. It's not because I'm mad at her. It's because I don't want her to burn herself, right? So how do we deal with lust? Well, first of all, we are vigilant about it. Look for the first signs. Watch out for it. Secondly, we're transparent with people we trust, Okay. Find some people in your life who you trust, who you know love you, and tell them you're struggling. Don't keep it in the dark. Married people, be transparent with your spouse about your schedule, your text messages, your credit card statements, all of those kind of things. We also set boundaries. 
Think about how you spend your time. What are life-giving ways you can spend time, especially in times of stress, loneliness, and hurt? Now, it's important that you hear this too. And what is Jesus talking about when he's talking about lust? Jesus is not saying, if you find someone attractive, you're going to hell, okay? That's That's not what he says. Remember, Jesus is saying the trajectory of lust in your heart is the trash heap. He loves us and he wants us. Jesus is calling us away from lustful imagination, following these lustful impulses. Now, this gets really confusing in our culture today because our culture is pretty confused about sex, right? There's multiple messages. For a long time, since the sexual revolution in the 1960s, the message has been that any boundaries or accountability, even if it's just a subtle message, this is communicated, are really just repression. So therefore, it's oppressive, okay? So we've been given this thought that any boundaries or anything like that on sex is oppressive. One of the subtle messages was that we need to be completely free and open with sexuality. So sometimes lust is celebrated in our culture. The church, of course, reacted to this um, in an extreme way (laughs) and has often gained the reputation of being obsessed with sex and telling people just how bad it is, right? So you have this kind of pendulum swing the other way. Now we're in a cultural movement and moment where we have this um, Me Too movement that's happened. And we see a certain kind of recovered morality in the general culture regarding sex, where they're seeing the results of kind of a free love without boundaries and maybe even the result of the opposite pendulum swing happening at the same time. And so suddenly there's some things being reined in. There's some extreme statements that are made. There's some appropriate statements that are made. And as a result, our culture has so many different messages. We're severely confused when it comes to sexuality. We don't know what to think about things like sex and lust and marriage and anything. Well, the path of Jesus is, the path of God's design is that um, sex is a wonderful thing, a God-given thing intended for marriage. And the boundaries that we're called to set are because of God's great love, right? Then we're given a small section here on divorce, and it doesn't say much But I think it's no coincidence that it's sandwiched between a section on lust and a section on lies. So just as you avoid lust, avoid lies. That's why he calls us to stay away from complicated oaths. So at the end, there's this whole section on, hey, um, don't swear on your head because you can't turn your hair white or black. Um, He says, don't swear on heaven, don't swear on... A lot of that is not really things that we struggle with, complicated oaths in our life. But it's basically stay true to your word. Don't tell lies to one another. Divorce is often, most often, the result of lust, lies, or the combination of the two. It is the result of this reality. Now, Jesus says here, there may be a time for divorce, maybe in times of unchastity. Divorce is messy and it's awful. I've never met anyone who's been divorced who said, yes, I highly recommend it. No, it's painful. Even in times where it's deemed necessary, it's hard and it's difficult. My hope is that we would be a church that can do two things at the same time when it comes to divorce. Fight for marriages at all costs and also embrace people who have gone through divorce with empathy and great love. I think we can do both of those things at the same time. As we close, in in the backdrop of the New Testament, 
there's this one major cultural conflict which the church struggles with. And it will prove to be the church's greatest conflict. So if you read the New Testament, this conflict is going on in the background the whole time, okay? And it's the issue of ethnicity. The Holy Spirit starts to work among the Gentiles and the Jewish Christians are like, what do we do with that? Because the Gentiles aren't Jewish and this is a Jewish religion. So do they have to be circumcised now? And do they have to follow the Sabbath festivals and all that kind of stuff? This is something the church wrestles with for a long time. It's really messy in the New Testament. We get some like conflicting messages, but ultimately in Acts 15, there's a council of the church in Jerusalem that gets together and they ultimately decide after deliberation that Gentiles are welcome into the family of God just as they are culturally, right? That they can still be Gentiles culturally. They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to follow the Jewish festivals. They're in, but they're told that they need to do two things. And this was confusing to me at first when I first studied it, but they're told to do two things. First of all, they're not allowed to eat meat that's been previously sacrificed to idols. (laughs) To us, we might go, okay, that's not really something I struggle with. But in the first century, that was a big deal. It was a cultural thing to the Gentiles that they would participate in these festivals of sacrificing uh, this meat to false gods. Can't eat that kind of meat. It's been sacrificed that way. And the second thing was no sexual immorality. Why these two things? They seem so arbitrary. Like really you have all the rules out there and these are the two that you choose? So weird. It might even seem to give proof to the claim that Christians, when you hear, may hear in the culture that Christians are obsessed with ritual and sex, that's all they're uh, obsessed with, might think that this is proof of that. But here's why those two rules are so important. They're really, really practical. So the Jewish Christians at that time, they couldn't eat, as a matter of conscience, they couldn't eat meat sacrificed to idols, okay? Just part of their conscience, they just couldn't do it. And the church council knew that the only way for these Gentiles who eat meat sacrificed to idols and these Jews who don't, and they have completely different cultures and languages, the only way for them to ever be reconciled is if they're able to sit down and eat together at the same table, So what he's saying is don't eat meat sacrificed to idols because we're trying to get you to all eat at the same table. It was that important. Reconciliation was critical. And secondly, practically, the church council knew what happens when people sleep around outside of marriage. It breaks community apart. If the early church was sleeping around with each other, it would never be who it was created and supposed to be. So the two things they're most concerned about are reconciliation and faithfulness. Reconciliation and faithfulness. They wanted the church with all her different cultures to be reconciled. And they wanted the church to be faithful. The church didn't want those kind of factions like those that existed in Corinth. Why? Why are reconciliation and faithfulness so important because this is who God is. Our God is the one who is always reconciling and always faithful. This is who God is, and therefore, this is the way to life. Today, I wrestled with this in a passage that's so morality-based, so kind of like, do this, don't do that, stay away from this, go towards that. Today, I'm not telling you to do anything, okay? I'm not telling you to fix your anger. I'm not telling you to fix your lust or to stop lying, okay? 
I'm telling you to trust in the one who reconciled us on the cross, who showered and showed God's faithfulness upon us, and who is trustworthy through and through towards us. May we know this God, and may we be formed into the image of his son. Amen.